Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith and this week, what happens when you put a space scientist interested in looking for alien life, a geologist studying some of the earliest life on Earth, a psychologist and a linguist all in a radio studio together? Well, hopefully the answer is a really interesting conversation and answers to some of science's and your big questions because that is the lineup for our Naked Scientist's Ask Us Anything Q&A call-in this week, where you supply the questions and we'll provide the answers. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. And with me this week are Will McMahon, who's a geologist at the University of Cambridge. He uses a variety of different geological techniques to study some of our most important periods uh, in history since the planet was first formed about four and a half billion years ago. In your view then, Will, what is really the most important time in the planet's life? Oh, for me, it's got to be when um, plants were first colonising our continents. If we look around today, we have greenery everywhere. In fact, if you were to try and add up the biomass of all forms of life, and put it on some big, massive weighing scale, about 85% of the total would be made up by plant life. So what plants make up 85% of the mass of everything that's alive on Everything, Earth? every kingdom of life, oh. 85% of it is oh, planted by And when did the biomass. first plants appear? So we're talking about uh, 450 million years ago, which sounds like a long time, but bear in mind, Earth is 4.5 billion years old. So 90% of Earth history, we actually had no plant life at all. Thank you, Will. Also here, Xander Byrne, who's at the Institute of Astronomy. One of your interests is is looking for exoplanets. That got a Nobel Prize, didn't it? These are planets that are not in our own solar system. They're planets orbiting stars elsewhere out there in space. How on earth do we find them? Uh, Yeah, that's all correct. So the problem with this is that planets don't usually emit very much of their own light. They're usually kind of blinded by... Uh, the light of the star that's there in orbit around. So we usually have to find them by the way that the starlight is affected by the planet, whether that's the planet passing in front of the star and blocking out some of the starlight, uh, or whether it's due to the planet's gravitational effect on the star, causing it to wobble about uh, and altering the kind of colours that we can see uh, in the star's spectrum. How likely do we think out there is another Earth? 
this is quite a difficult question to answer, but it's a bit of a numbers game, right? I mean, there's, you know, we think that pretty much every star that's out there has at least one or two planets around it. And in our own galaxy alone, there are 200 billion stars, something like that. And there are tens of billions of galaxies in the observable universe. So when you multiply these numbers up, it seems pretty inevitable that there would be something very, very analogous to Earth out there somewhere. Also with us this week, Charlotte Kukowski is a psychologist and she's at the University of Cambridge's Social Decision Making Lab. And she's also on the panel for a talk which is happening at the Cambridge Festival and that incidentally kicks off on March the 17th. And her talk is titled, What is for Dinner? The Future of Meat. So what are you going to say? Right, yeah, so um, in that uh, event is going to be a conversation about how we can shift to diets that are sustainable for the planet, but also healthy and enjoyable for people. There was a bit of controversy recently when Cambridge University Student Union voted to make all of the meals at the university vegan, and there was, there was a bit of pushback. Uh, I mean, A, do you think that's a valid standpoint, and B... How well received is that likely to be? Right. Yeah, I, I did see that um, that petition. Um, well, what we see in the science is that, and what's often surprising for people to hear about, that it really is about what we eat and not where that food comes from or how it's packaged, right? So the type of food, plant-based food in this case, and especially reducing red meat consumption, is really something that's highly impactful for the environment. Um, and so plant-based options are a good way to go with sustainable diets. But, of course, they need to be accessible and available for people. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Uh, Stephanie Ullman's also here. She's a linguist, and she also is going to be giving a talk at the Cambridge Festival, but your one's a little bit different. I'm going to be talking about language-based artificial intelligence, something like social media, for example, and some of the phenomena that have been increasing on these platforms like harmful speech, radicalisation. And how does AI help with that? Depends a bit how we use it. So a lot of these AI systems, a lot of algorithms are, of course, part of the problem. But if we deploy them in a slightly different way, we can actually also use them to kind of counter the harmful, the potentially dangerous content. Let's get on with our first question. This one has come in and it says, Will. As well as life here on Earth, you hunt for early signs of life hidden in fossils, which might mean you can tell us what are scientists looking for when they're trying to find signs of life not on this planet, but on Mars? Wow, yeah, how to find a fossil on Mars. Um, it's a fantastic time to be, to be interested in the planet Mars. We have multiple surface rover missions going on at the moment. We've got NASA's Curiosity and its more recent Perseverance rover working their way across specifically targeted parts of the planet's surface today. And Mars has a gift for the scientist, people like myself, in that it has a very pristinely, beautifully preserved ancient uh, geomorphic record, a surface record of its former landscapes, whereas on Earth today, such landscapes, they don't last too long because we have active plate tectonics. These, over geological timescales, our landscapes are destroyed. We also cover up these beautiful landforms with buildings and they're covered by vegetation. It's quite hard to actually get a handle on the ancient geomorphic surfaces that comprise Earth. Mm. But Mars is different. Um, Mars's uh, ancient geomorphic record goes back billions of years and it tells us a, a history of a far warmer, wetter past. Can I Not- just ask, why, why have we got plates moving around and 
resurfacing the Earth with volcanoes and earthquakes, but Mars doesn't. Yeah, it's 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 a big question that uh, lots of people are still sort of uh, wrestling with an answer. We think very early in Mars's history, it probably did have some manner of plate tectonics, but um, but pretty early on, the processes internal to the planet that actually caused continents to move around above plates on Earth today, these processes shut down on the planet Mars and essentially left it vulnerable. It's got very uh, low erosion rates throughout Earth history, so it basically left these final snapshots of these processes sort of amenable to observation for for billions of years. Um, so, so in other words, that for a fossil hunter... You you you'd have it be your your heaven if if it was if Earth was like that you'd you'd find this amazing record of everything going back over all time almost a- absolutely and this is why the rover's missions are are, are critical to our success because if if we could actually get geologists to the planet Mars and actually go and touch and sniff and lick rocks I th- I think we'd be there by now right now we have to make very uh, strategic decisions on on where to go and and look for our fossils on the planet so Mars's geomorphic record we know we've got ancient rivers we've got uh, lake systems even deltas where rivers might have met the sea these are very habitable environments so it's very plausible that three billion years ago, Mars was inhabited. But that, that's one thing. Have we, actually, seen, have we seen anything interesting yet or anything that's got scientists excited? Well, we found environments in which life could plausibly exist, could have existed. Again, we're talking three billion years ago. So even by a geologist standard, this is a long time ago. But what happened to that fossil that looked like it had some funny bacterium in it that made history nasa said look have we found life on mars it looked they said are these fossilized microbes or something the alan hills eighty-four thousand and one or whatever that specimen was did that amount to nothing in the end it did amount to nothing and this is this is going to be the curse of the planetary geologist if you like is it's very hard especially we're not expecting to find sorry for the sci-fi fans we're not expecting to find aliens with faces the period of history we're talking three billion years ago it's one to two billion years older than when multicellular life existed on earth we're looking for microbial life but when it comes to uh, microbial life it's very very simplistic so it can leave certain signatures of its you know potential former presence there are a variety of textures which basically developed as a result of the microbial surfaces interactions between the substrates in the atmosphere mm. but there's a lot of overlap between simple processes that form abiotically but make similar looking textures so it's very easy to right. to to find so it. we're presumably we're looking for those and are we looking for the chemical fingerprint as well then that that life even though it might not be there now was there absolutely and, and that's what the rovers are after and and this is again why possibly when we actually do get somewhere we're not, we're not going to be finding the sort of alien with a face we're looking for muds muds are fantastic at preserving signs of life but there's certain clay types that can actually only form through soil forming processes which linked to biology so it's those clays we're after and what about not mars but much farther away zander you were saying that we can now see what's in the atmosphere of distant planets does this mean potentially we could go after mars type environments or are the telescopes not up to that yet well, they are getting better and better. And as I mentioned, with the advent of the James Webb Space Telescope, we are finally being able to detect molecules in the atmospheres of these distant planets, which we would never have been able to do before. In recent months, James Webb has found the first signatures of uh, carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, um, 
quite considerably strong components of, of many of these atmospheres. Do we know what we're looking for, though? If we were to see a distant world, would we know what the signature in the atmosphere to look for that would tell us, hey, there's probably life there? Well, there are certain chemicals that people... We call these biosignatures, uh, right, which um, could potentially be evidence of life there. Some of these are quite controversial. For example, I think the main one that we're really looking for is oxygen because it's quite difficult to have oxygen in an atmosphere uh, for a very long time without there being like loads and loads of trees and algae constantly pumping it into the atmosphere as we have here on Earth. But as I say, this is quite controversial because there are some people who think that there are certain processes that exist which could generate oxygen under um, abiotic processes without life. Uh, so I think even when we find some kind of signature that there might be life somewhere, it will be argued over quite a lot. The other thing that people often bring up is water, and they say this is a critical ingredient for life. Why? I believe it's just because, I mean, I'm not a biologist, but I think it's just because water is such a crucial solvent, um, and so it just is completely crucial for any form of life. Um, that's a bit of a case of it's necessary but not really sufficient, uh, because you do need water uh, in order to have life, but just because you find some water there doesn't mean there is necessarily life there. In the first press releases of the James Webb Space Telescope, it found water on an atmosphere of a sort of Jupiter-sized exoplanet. Um, but this was an incredibly harsh environment, ridiculously high temperatures, thousands of degrees, so there would certainly be no life there, even though there is water. That's some sauna, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So don't go there on your holidays. Definitely not. Charlotte, central to us all making individual contributions to climate change, this says, or for the greater good more generally, uh, we need to demonstrate good self-control and discipline. So what can you tell us about self-control from a psychological perspective? Are we, some of us, born with exceptional self-control, self-efficacy, and some of us a bit more weak-willed, or is this something we can all learn and improve on? Yeah, self-control is something that gets talked about so much, you know, sometimes almost seen as this holy grail of psychological um, capacities. In the scientific sort of view, self-control is essentially the capacity to resist a tempting thing, like flopping on the couch after a long day at work, just to pursue a goal. So, for example, to get fitter uh, or to run a 5K. And there are differences between people and how good they are at this. But that may be due to strategies that people use. So, for example, if you know the couch is really tempting and you want to get good at running, uh, you might go to the gym straight from work uh, instead of going home first. Ah, so you subvert yourself into doing virtuous things. <laughs> you can trick yourself a little so you, bit. So you, you basically know what your weaknesses are and you know you can avoid everything except temptation. And so you, you sort of make sure you plan your life. Because someone always said to me I mean, when I studied nutrition, they said, never go shopping when you're hungry. I think that's definitely one strategy that people can use. But I'd say that it's also really important to stress that self-control is only one piece of the puzzle, right? And so there are environments that people make decisions in, and often those can be outside of people's control. So you have to have access to resources, to time, to money, um, like to buy a sustainable and healthy diet, for example, or to use public transportation. It has to be accessible. So I'd say strategies for goals are great. Uh, that's something that we can all work on to some extent, but mindset isn't everything, and we can't sort of remove structural barriers through positive thinking. Thank you.
this week, it's science Q&A time, with me answering all the questions that you've been sending in are geologist Will McMahon, astronomer Xander Byrne, psychologist Charlotte Kukowski and linguist Stephanie Ullman. And of course, if you'd like to send in a question to a programme like this, and we'll shove it under our microscope, you can write to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet us, it's at Naked Scientist, and we will do our best to solve it. Still to come, why did sharks survive the asteroid which knocked out the dinosaurs? And what would taking a shower on a lunar base be like? Right, now, uh, Anthony says, and he's in Cherry Hinton, Hi Naked Scientist, several years ago there was talk about possible alien life in the gases of Venus. I don't know if this is still understood to be the case, but if there were life forms made of gas, would they have been as influential on the planet as solid plants and animals on Earth? So first of all, let's ask, uh, who wants to take that? That's probably a combination of Xander and Will. Will, is that one for you first? I can I can give it a go. I, I mean, do, yeah. do we still think that those gases could support life? Because it was a phosphorus compound, yeah, wasn't it? it? Was in phosphine, the upper atmosphere I believe, of I believe Venus. They, they found. I, it's 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 a new game. It's uh, there's a, certainly a lot of debate about it. It's got people talking, but that that's a good thing. That's the the scientific method showing it's working. I think. When we consider life on other planets, it's very easy for us to think, oh, that life's going to be very familiar to us based on our understanding of life forms on Earth. That's not necessarily the case. There's however many billions of stars and planets out there, which I'm sure Xander will, 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 you know, knows better than me, there might be forms of life that we couldn't possibly comprehend. Certainly if there was a different form of life that we're used to on our neighbouring planet, that would probably tell us it's everywhere, right? But that particular find, I think it's still being debated still somewhat. Up in the air. Up in, in the, the air, In the upper atmosphere, in the atmosphere of Venus. Atmosphere. Have a go at this question for James, who, who says his seven-year-old son, Hamrath, wants to know why mountains are pointy, and if so, why, why are planets round then? Okay, well, there's different scales, right? Uh, planets form through planetesimals uh, over vast periods of time. You, you have... What's one of those? Oh, okay. So a, a baby planet. So if we if we if we were in our, our solar system and we have uh, asteroids colliding and accreting and forming progressively larger and larger bodies, they essentially start having their own sort of gravitational field, which kicks in a feedback loop and attracts more space debris to them. So they get bigger and bigger and bigger till ultimately you've cleared up all the muck in your general area and you've you've got your planet. So um, that explains why you get a ball, because it, under gravity everything's pulling towards the centre of the ball and it's the, the ball shape is the closest everything can, can reasonably get. Precisely. Uh, without, you know, being too far from anything else. So that's why they're round from a distance. But close up, mountains are pointy. So what makes mountains go pointy? And plate tectonics will have a big part of that. So it's not just a perfect, beautiful sphere, but it's a fractured sphere. And our plates are constantly moving along it over very small uh, periods of time. We famously, we talk about the Atlantic sort of rifting and North America getting further away from us today at about the rate our fingernails are growing. But geological time is long. We're talking hundreds of millions of years, billions of years. So these plates do collide and force uplift. And with that uplift comes, essentially, you take your ball and you large mass fits and project it upwards. And when you're topographically higher, then you're more vulnerable to erosion. But that erosion doesn't necessarily hit all the same spots equally. Yeah. Um, so, so in summary, then, gravity makes planets and it makes them round because it pulls all the material together, a bit like you get a raindrop which is all the water trying to get as close together as possible. That gives you the round shape from a distance. But when you zoom in a bit closer, you find that local factors have pushed things up to make pointier surfaces. And that's why mountains are pushed up and they're pointy. But eventually they'll wear down and go flat if nothing's making more mountains. Absolutely. And these are continuous processes that will happen time and time again. 
Thank you very much, Will. Stephanie, uh, BBC Panorama has been told by Twitter insiders, according to this question, that the company is no longer able to protect its users from trolling and, and state-coordinated disinformation. Allegedly, uh, and that's because of layoffs that have been brought in by Elon Musk, who now owns that company. So what is the point they're making? Why is Twitter and, and other social media potentially endangering our democracy? What's the, what's the potential threat there? It doesn't really surprise me very much, to be honest, to see these kinds of results because it, it mostly shows to me or it proves the point that unfortunately a lot of detection work on harmful content, disinformation, hate speech, a lot of the detection work is still done by humans. So, of course, if you let them go, the algorithm can only do the work to a certain extent. I get you. So by reducing the size of the workforce who were scrutinising what was going through the platform, there are fewer filters in the way. Exactly, exactly. So more more stuff gets through. Yeah, a lot of the things that is taken out, we fortunately, we will never see a lot of content like terrorist content, child pornographic content. They're literally human beings who are looking at this for hours every day and filtering it because a lot of algorithms are still struggling with with doing the detection work. The the, the problem is, though, that computers are not very good at doing it, isn't it? Because people are saying we we need to substitute computers, get them to scrutinise it, and then we fall victim to being declared doing something nefarious when yes. we're not. I mean, there was a, a wildlife uh, organisation, a charity, that put out some tweets about woodcocks, and that's a bird. And mm-hmm. they, they were very interested in yes. raising awareness, and unfortunately <laughs> they fell victim to yes. Twitter. Yes. And it was ironic that it was a bird charity that fell victim to Twitter's filter. <laughs> I guess that's, that's why people like you are trying to solve this, isn't it, to try and make more intelligent filters. Yes, I mean, it it just shows that, and I'm not entirely sure whether um, artificial intelligence will ever fully be a solution for this. It just shows how nuanced and how contextual language is. So, of course, a human being would recognize this as a charity by just background knowledge that we have, contextual knowledge, but, of course, an algorithm does not have this. You can imagine the problem we have as the naked scientists, (laughs) can't you? Yeah. (laughs) Your your reputation will be forever tarnished through having (laughs) appeared on this program now. True. I'm only joking. Your your reputation will be significantly enhanced, as will ours. Will, I love this question, which is coming from Oscar, who says, if you were able today to time travel, and the reason I love this is because it's been something that's occurred to me as well, if you could go back to the Jurassic with a camera and a way to store data for us to later find, how would you plant that time capsule for geologists and paleontologists to, to dig up today? Where would be a good place to sequester it? Because of the point you made earlier about the Earth resurfacing itself and tectonic plates and so on. Where's the best place to put something so it'll stay around for a long time? Huh. Well, I mean, I certainly wouldn't choose the Jurassic if I had a choice. I don't think I'd, I'd last very long. Um, but I think that's the point he's making. He wants pictures of dinosaurs. OK, well, I'd, I'd home in on the Goldilocks zone. I'd certainly choose continental crust. We have two types of crust, continental crust and oceanic. Oceanic's less buoyant, it's denser. So when the two meet, it's the oceanic crust that subducts. So whilst my camera might be waterproof, it probably can't survive subducting to Earth's mantle. It's probably a bit too hot for it. So I'd choose land. Then you've got a case of maybe I'd choose a mountain. Well, mountains erode, as we said earlier. I wouldn't know where where my camera would end up. 
So I'd probably be heading towards Earth's more lowland environments. I'll introduce a term here uh, known as a sedimentary basin. These are essentially depressions in Earth's landscape where sedimentary rocks, sedimentary piles can build up. They, they can accrue. So I'd find somewhere that was actively depositing such that my camera has a chance of, of making it to the record. I'd need it not to be connected to the oceans. Again, it goes to this factor, if, if, I, if I put it in a river basin, long after I've been eaten by the T-Rex, the river shifts, reworks where my camera was and takes it off to the ocean and subducts it to the mantle, that's not doing us any good. So I guess I'd, I'd probably try and find a lake, ideally a, a hydrologically closed lake, a lake that's not connected to, to the ocean in any way, but sort of disconnected by some sort of resistant topographic uplands, something with high preservation potential. This sort of very low energy environment, no chance of my camera of heading out anywhere. This is the case where my sediment could gradually over time uh, build up around it and, and preserve it. But even we've still got a problem then. We might preserve the camera, but we still need to expose it at the, the present day for a modern geologist to be wandering around. And where geological outcrops exist, it's very, it's very stochastic, it's very random. We need a road cut in a nice area or a beach where waves are bashed and exposed our rock. Yeah, you know, when you said exposure, I was thinking of camera exposure. And I think, no, it doesn't have, it can be digital. You're all right. But uh, I, I guess yeah, what you mean we, is we, it's we, got to we, come to the surface in some way so that someone like you can stumble on it. Absolutely. And, and the chances of that years happening are, are, are pretty minute. I, I think if all these dreams did come true and I was the geologist that found the camera, I'd be more interested in how the time machine was invented. Yeah, than, uh, exactly. Than, the than physicist what, what, in you would kick in. Absolutely. But um, surely a really good answer to this question, we will go and find where all the fossils are and go back to where you know there's a really rich source of fossils and put it where you know those fossils are going to have come from because A, there's lots of likelihood someone will go and dig in that area and B, that's an area that's going to be preserved from that time period. That, that's true. I guess I'd, I'd have to also then trust the, the paleocontinental reconstructions and try and retrace my geological footsteps. But back. you guys know what you're doing, don't you? I, I mean, I trust in my peers. I don't do the paleocontinental <laughs> reconstructions myself. Well, from here on Earth into space for you, Xander, this person says the world has been gripped by balloon drama in recent weeks. What's the precedent, though, for using balloons in space or kind of out there in the solar system for research-type purposes? Are they any better than other sorts of spacecraft? What's the uh, potential? Well, in some ways, yes. I mean, NASA already uses balloons for quite a considerable amount of research. The main advantage is that they are just so much cheaper than using a rocket to try and send something all the way up into space. Uh, for a balloon... You can't get it all the way, of course, because you need this kind of buoyancy. You need there to still be some atmosphere there. You can't get it all the way up into space. But you can get it very, very close, and for something like 1% of the cost. So it's pretty good on that front. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. This week we're answering the science questions that you've been sending in and helping me do that are geologist Will McMahon, astronomer Xander Byrne, psychologist Charlotte Kukowski and linguist Stephanie Ullman. It's now that part of the programme where we put our expert guests more general knowledge to the test in a quiz. And you at home can join in too, of course. Team one are going to be Xander and Charlotte. And team two, it's going to be Will and Stephanie. And you are actively encouraged to confer between the two of you. Now, round one is called Know Your Lingo. Will and Stephanie, apiology 
is the study of is it primates is it honeybees or is it animal imitation what do you think primates would be too obvious wouldn't it it's a trick question i feel <laughs> option three you're going for animal imitation animal imitation animal imitation then you get one of these that's Unfortunately, you get a noise, which means no, honeybees. it's not right. Do you guys know what what it is? I think it's honeybees, isn't it? Because it's, the yes. Italian for bee is like ape or something. Yes, it, it, indeed, you're <laughs> absolutely right. Uh, playing a vital role in the ecosystem, understanding the life cycle and behaviour of honeybees is more important, especially as their numbers have seen a decline because of the phenomenon of colony collapse disorder. Apis is Latin for bee. Stealing a point, well done. Yeah, right. <laughs> so well done. Uh, over to you, uh, Zander and Charlotte. Your knowing your lingo question. Speleology is the study of what? Is it A, caves, B, playing, or C, storytelling? Speleology. Is that caves, is playing, or storytelling? I reckon probably caves, right? Because it's like um, spelunking, right? <laughs> spelunking, I haven't heard that one before, but I'm actually like also quite caves, sure right? that it's that is caves. Should go caves then. Yeah. Right, caves. Yeah. Well, then you get one of these. Yes. You get a bing bong. The job of a speleologist is to explore the deep and the dark mysterious innards of caves. And um, spelunkus in Latin right. is, is a cave. Right, so far, Zander and Charlotte on one. Will and Stephanie yet to score. Round two, communication is the key. So this will appeal again to you, Stephanie, won't it? Uh, you're back on the on your marks, and the question is, Will and Stephanie, which of the following animals have the most sophisticated vocal language? Is it prairie dogs, dolphins or chimpanzees? The most sophisticated vocal language. Prairie dogs, dolphins or chimpanzees? What do you think? Um, I would say dolphins. How do you define sophisticated? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good point. No, I can't. Is it I the range of, of vocal uh, vocal signals or dolphin chatter gets have, good press, they, doesn't it? They have quite good vocal skills and imitation skills. Stephanie's got this. She's <laughs> going to decide. No, we're getting dolphins. You're going dolphins. Oh God, hopefully, it's actually prairie dogs. They've Do they have regional accents as well? Different warning calls, which are what? based on what species of predator might be approaching, whether it's a coyote, oh. a snake or a human. And in addition, they also able to describe what a particular predator looks like, and in the case of humans, even whether they have a gun on them or not. Dolphins use whistles that identify one another. That's quite, quite uh, impressive. Chimpanzees, they're, mm. despite being our closest relatives aren't capable of complex vocalisations like humans, so they're a bit further down the pecking order. So no, no points for that one. Right, back to team uh, two, who are Zander and Charlotte. Your question is, the world's first telegraph message got dispatched from Washington, D.C. in 1832, and it said, what hath God wrought? But who sent it? Was that Samuel Morse, Guglielmo Marconi, or Joseph Henry, who sent that message in 1832? Um, well, Marconi, very, very well known in the southeast of England because, of course, he set his base up in Chelmsford in Essex oh, okay. and there was a main centre. Marconi Engineering was there for a long time. Oh, right. Well, yeah. that is a bit of a clue because presumably that guy wouldn't be in, in Washington, D.C. So I reckon probably, mm. probably mm. Joseph Should Henry. We go by elimination then? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> we'll go Joseph Henry. You're going Joseph Henry and the answer is it is Samuel Morse. Oh, it was Morse. Wasn't he it? was a painter originally, turned inventor. He composed the set of signals, the dots and dashes that are the Morse code that allowed for communication on primitive telegraph machines. Marconi is known for creating the first practical radio, which built on the work of Joseph Henry and other physicists who were around working at the time on electromagnetism. So at the moment, Team 2, you're still in the lead with one plays nil. So you've got a score on this one. Back to you, Zander and Charlotte. 
it would have been the 89th birthday this week of Yuri Gagarin. He was the first man in space. And in his honour, we've got this round uh, all about the solar system. So are you ready? Will and Stephanie, one day on Earth is defined as how long it would take the Earth to complete its full rotation. How long is a day on Venus in Earth days? How accurate do we need to be? Is it 10? No. Is it 0.2? Or is it 243? How many, days, how many days would you have to live on Earth to have one complete day on Venus? Median. You're going 10? Yes. Oh, no. No, I'm so sorry. sorry. You're doing very well. Yeah, we're consistent. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're consistent. Yes, you're right. Absolutely. No, uh, Venus is the unusual one. Do, do you know the answer to this? Yeah, do you know it's a really long one, isn't it? It's mm. A day on Venus, I believe, is longer than a year. Yes, you're right. Venus takes 225 Earth days to do one lap of the sun. So what we call a year, 365 days, it takes Venus 225 days to do that. But it takes it 243 days, so longer than its year, to complete one revolution, what we would call a day. And the reason that Venus's day is longer than its year, scientists think, is because it has a very thick, swirling atmosphere, and that, as it spins, tugs on the planet and speeds it up more than it should be spinning, because Venus is quite close to the sun, it should be what we call tidally locked to the sun, therefore it should turn with one revolution taking one year, like our moon does on the Earth, so we think that's why it goes a little bit faster. Well, let's see how your knowledge holds up uh, on your question on in orbit then, Zander and Charlotte. The time it takes the Earth to make one revolution around the sun is one year, but how many Earth years does it take Neptune to do the equivalent journey? Is it A, 165 years, B, 49 years, or C, 113 years? I think it's 165. I think Pluto is like 250 or something. So I think it's probably just whatever the longest answer was. Oh, I will just blindly go (laughs) with whatever you suggest. (laughs) Yes, you get a bing-bong for that. It is indeed 165 years. So when Neptune last had a new year, we had Queen Victoria reigning over the British Empire and also Henry Bessemer had uh, just patented his revolutionary steelmaking process. So Mm. all in the time of one year on Neptune. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Neptune was actually discovered around the same kind of time. So Neptune's... Almost in, I think it's just past where it was in the solar system when we actually discovered it. So thank you very much to to, uh, Xander and Charlotte. You are this week's winners with two points. And unfortunately, Stephanie and Will, you were yet to score. I think we should give them a round of applause. Let's go back to the questions. Um, Let's go to this one, which uh, has been sent in for you, Will. Hello, this is Paul from New Zealand. We are told that humans started in East Africa. Different folk have different cultures and customs regarding their dead. If one culture burns their dead and another culture buries their dead, then obviously you will only find the bones of those who have been buried. But those bones may not be as old as folk who have been burnt. Who knows? Interesting point there, isn't it? Because if you burn stuff up and destroy it, there's no archaeological or paleontological record of that. It's a wonderful question, and, and there's a wonderful term for this, uh, the study of the fossilization process. Taphonomy derives from the Greek word for burial, 
the Greeks, they got in on this game early. Aristotle famously thought fossilised fish were just fish that swam into cracks, into rocks and got trapped and died and interred. And these ideas stuck around for a couple of thousands of years. In short, of course, if you uh, have a culture that buries your dead, you're doing yourself a favour in, in, in leaving a record of your existence. Though I'm sure these early humans had more important things to think of. This isn't the only factor that comes into it. We have one body which we could potentially give the fossil record, but over the course of a lifetime, we might leave a billion footsteps. We can leave traces of our existence with every activity that we do every single day. We build houses, forge weapons, we forge tools. The trace fossil record is far more powerful in a way than the body fossil record. And even if we were burying our dead, there are certain environments that are very amenable to preserving a body fossil, but certain environments that aren't, you know, if we bury things in sandy substrates, bodies degrade, but these same environments, they might actually lend themselves to preserving trace fossils, to preserving footsteps. So I can't see it being too much of an issue because whilst the body fossil record might be depleted for one set of humans or another, the trace fossil record of their existence, that's going to be pretty yeah, compelling. Because the assumption in Paul's question is that people have a planned death and a planned burial or end of life. But lots of people's lives end in an accident and there are some wonderful specimens preserved where people have just fallen down a hole into a cave or into mud or, or got into sinking mud or something and then they, they're preserved three million years later within that environment. So I suppose in that regard, you, you know, you're saying the science is, is robust because they wouldn't have been burned up whether they were going to be or not. Precisely. I mean, we have another wonderful word for exceptional preservation. We call it Lagerstatt, and it uh, derives from German for motherload. Um, yeah, there, there are fantastic case studies. We've got bog bodies in um, Copenhagen in Denmark and um, f fantastic specimens o over the Atlantic as well. But these really are the exceptions. Trace fossils, they're pretty mundane. They're everywhere. They leave a more compelling history. Try and answer this question for Patrick. Hi, I'm Patrick from Brazil. Why did the shark survive in a meteor crash and, a, and the dinosaurs didn't? I think Patrick wins the award for being our youngest listener and also our farthest disposed listener in our very much a sort of all-round-the-world sort of Q&A show this week. So he's getting at the fact that sharks and dinosaurs were around at the same time, but meteor comes, wipes out the dinosaurs, doesn't do for sharks at the same time. Why? It's a wonderful question, Patrick. With mass extinctions, it's, it's, it's rarely actually one thing that actually is the final act for a, a particular organism or, or group of organisms. Let's take the dinosaurs. After the impact event, the severity of that event, it have killed off a lot of Earth's grasslands. We're talking about the continents right now. There'd have been a lot less vegetation, which is bad news if you're a herbivore. There's less food for you to actually eat. So there's more competition for the food that remains. The herbivores would diminish in number as a result. That means there's less food for the carnivores and the omnivores. Suddenly, it's a very good time to be a bird. With their evolution of those wings, they could cover huge amounts of areas and actually find what food remained. And birds are warm-blooded, of course, which presumably helped. Yeah, it probably makes them more energy efficient as well, probably makes them less dependent on actually getting the calories. A reason crocodiles did so well out of the mass extinction event, again, crocodiles have existed on the planet long before even the dinosaurs, is that they could essentially almost shut down. They could essentially not require food for months on end. But if we go to the oceans, sharks, maybe they were just fish generalists. They weren't fussy eaters. It 
pays not to be a fussy eater during a mass extinction. So they might be able to sort of hoover up what fish remained after the extinction event, whereas some of their big aquatic reptilian cousins even despite their size, you know, maybe they were just being outcompeted for the same prey. Well, um, I'm glad because I was going to ask you that precise question because there were reptiles living in the ocean alongside the sharks, these plesiosaurs and things, weren't there, that, that you'd think, well, why don't they survive if the sharks can? And you think it's because they were a bit too fussy in their eating habits. The, the chances are they're going for the same food. We don't actually know which were the apex uh, predators between some of your, your large mesosaurs and ichthyosaurs and pliosaurs versus things like sharks. Sharks didn't have size necessarily on their size. They grew into much larger things well after the extinction event that did away the dinosaurs. But at this time, maybe they were just very well coordinated. Maybe they were faster and more agile and were able to actually evade their predators and catch their prey more efficiently. And maybe maybe that's what got them through. So there you go, Patrick. Now we know. Thanks, Will. Uh, Charlotte, one for you. Um, This person says, stress means I find it very hard to fall asleep but then I'm more stressed because I'm too tired to focus properly in the next day and this vicious circle goes round and round and round. Have you any advice for me? So stress is a really natural response that our bodies have to a perceived threat, but it can become a problem when it disrupts your well-being. So it can really affect your mental and physical health, and that includes sleep as well because it really affects all systems in the body, like um, hormones that are transmitted, neurotransmitters, your muscle tension, your breathing. Um, And this is actually a really common problem. Um, So one in four adults, for example, in the U.S., say that they're so stressed on most days that they can't function. Um, Something that can be helpful for people is to identify sources of stress. Is it something psychological or something physical? Um, Is it acute or is it chronic, like a long-term situation in your life that's really stressful? Or is it something perhaps in the environment, pollution, poverty, uh, or internal? Um, Because often I find that um, sort of a common recommendation is for people to make changes to their lifestyles. But there are also stressors, of course, that we can't um, just sort of meditate or exercise away uh, that need sort of more systemic solutions. Uh, Zandra, have you showered today? Yes, yes, I have. The reason for asking is that Justin, (laughs) Justin doesn't want to know that, but Justin does want to know about, he's obviously been looking at the news and the idea of building space stations on the moon and says, that got him thinking, what would happen if you were to try and have a shower on the lunar base of the future? What would be the consequence? Mm, Would it work? This is like a, this is a really interesting. I don't think anyone's really looked into this very much. So, I, so what I think would happen, right, is so when you're having a shower, the water that's like on your body, there are two forces on it. There's obviously the gravity pulling it down uh, off your body to to the to the floor, and there's also a quite small but definitely there uh, an electrostatic attraction from the water to, uh, to your skin. Um, and so this is why, you know, when you come out of the shower, there'll still be like dro- little droplets of water on your skin. They won't just fall uh, straight to the ground. Now, that force will pretty much be the same on the moon as it would be on the Earth. But the moon, of course, has less gravity than the Earth. I think it's about a factor of six or something um, that the gravity would be weaker. So the droplets would need to get larger before the gravity would be strong enough to pull them down off your skin. So... I think in terms of what it would actually be like, it would sort of feel stickier in a way. It might be uh, like a little bit uncomfortable. It would feel like really quite strange. 
Um, do you think you'd have a more efficient shower because you'd get effectively wetter because the water would stick to you for longer and then take longer to fall off you? Yeah, I mean, that's true. But I mean, what you really want in a shower, uh, what I really want in a shower is for the water to wash everything off. So um, perhaps if there's you know, less gravity, then the water wouldn't be you know, washing you it as much and so it would be a less efficient shower otherwise you're just taking a bath now. exactly yeah you're just <laughs> standing up which yeah should i mean be quite an interesting experience yeah i mean in the limit if you're kind of floating in zero gravity all the water will just stick to you and you'll be surrounded in some kind of weird watery film yeah, imagine a swimming pool in space because a swimming pool on a space station that didn't have some way of making in inverted commas making gravity mm. you'd have a swimming pool that was like a bubble yeah, it would water, just be a ball. And you'd get trapped inside it, so you wouldn't actually be able to get out very easily. How, mm. how would you surface, in inverted commas? There's no up and down. I mean, you would still be able to kind of swim towards, like, the surface of it. So you'd be able to kind of push the water around you back, in a way. I mean, this is obviously how, how swimming works, wherever you are. Do you think you would, as you came across your notional floating bubble, do you think mm. you'd just keep swimming and just swim out of it? Probably, yeah. I, th- I mean, if, and if you were kind of drag a trail of water with you across, yeah, the- I think that's probably what would happen. Yeah, and that, and as I say, there would be probably more water that would stick to you than you would probably like, <laughs> which is ushers in a whole realm of possibilities for new hair care products and all that kind of thing, and like body shower f- yeah. gels. And Maybe they have to have thing. like a different concentration of all the different minerals on, on the moon or whatever. Fascinating concept and a great question. Stephanie, we're going to ask you about ChatGPT. We couldn't possibly let you go. We couldn't have a linguist in here without talking about ChatGPT. It's been all over the news for, for months now, hasn't it? This is the artificial intelligence chatbot um, set up by um, a subsidiary of Microsoft. You sort of alluded to to AI and, and language and human ability earlier, but are, are we in a position where we're going to need to come up pretty promptly with ways to spot these things because of the threat they might pose? So we can we can because even politicians are talking about using this in, in various ways, and, and that makes me very nervous indeed. I don't really see any major threats right now. Chatbots, for example, have been able for a long time to create harmful language. That is concerning, that is threatening. But right now, I wouldn't say that ChatGPT is really a threat. And there are a lot of, of people already working on developing systems that can automatically detect whether a text was generated by an AI or a human. These do not work perfectly well yet, but uh, considering how fast research is moving forward in this field, I would I would assume that this will be possible in the near future. But in general, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I've tried out ChatGPT just be- out of curiosity, and I would say it does produce some pretty good text in terms of structure. So it's got good syntax, good grammar, good vocabulary. But in terms of what a human being can produce and the idiosyncrasies that just having human experiences adds to how we would write a text, I think that's there are pretty much still huge differences and pretty easy to spot. It fell down in tests on facts, though, didn't it? It, it, it talked a good game. But yeah. when you dig below the surface, it's extremely iffy indeed, isn't it? I mean, you're nodding, Will. Well, as a vanity project, um, the other day I was asking Chat uh, GBT uh, some questions, which I knew the answers were about my own research, to to see if 
if it would get it. And and what concerned me was, uh, is it able to sort of tell good research from bad research? Like, does it have that hurdle of peer review? Once something's published, does it think it's fact? I wouldn't trust it. So I've certainly especially noticed, where your research is concerned. Yeah. 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 For example, it does make up its own references. So I I certainly wouldn't trust it to write my my essay for university for example although some people did do that and submitted yeah. them as a test to their tutors and they got quite good marks it might force us to maybe reconsider how we read and how we mark essays i wouldn't necessarily say that's a terrible thing and also we might just want to adapt and rethink and and consider how we can use this tool to our advantage like it can give you a, a pretty good first draft maybe of something but then you can use your own tools and skills as a student as a scholar to make it really good and then get a top grade and not just an average let's hope so and that i'm afraid is where we must leave it that's all the time we have for some science this week thank you very much for listening and also sending in your questions and a very big thanks of course to the panel who helped us to answer them that's geologist will mcmahon astronomer Xander Byrne, psychologist Charlotte Kukowski and linguist Stephanie Ullman. Next time we're recharging in nature. We're finding out how a plan to get better electric vehicle infrastructure into our national parks mean that they're no longer off limits to people worried about going there in an electric vehicle for fear of running out of charge. If you'd like to get in touch in the meantime, our email address is at bbc.co.uk. Until then, from me, Chris Smith, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>